First of all, Heather, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I, I, I really, even just looking at the cover of the book, it's okay to go up the slide. Renegade rules for raising confident and creative kids. I, I hearken back to my elementary school days and getting yelled at by teachers for trying to climb up the slide like a little adventurer in first and second grade. So it's bringing back happy memories just to start with. Ah, uh, good. Yes, I think this book is uh, written for uh, adults who remember what it's like to be a kid and how we can support that. Fantastic. There's so many things that, that I want to get into, but, but one of them uh, really jumped out at me right away, and it's that we've been told all of our lives, don't talk to strangers, and then I grew up to do like radio shows and broadcasts where I'm talking to hundreds of strangers a day. <laughs> You're saying don't say don't talk to strangers. Why? Why is that a, a key tenet for you? Yeah, well, as you say, we've been told that all our lives, but it, it doesn't work. It doesn't keep kids safe. And that's the number one reason why I'm suggesting doing something else. Um, they're finding that kids who have experience interacting with the world, which includes talking to people you don't know, um, people on the sidewalk as you're walking down the street or people at the grocery store, the clerks, anybody who might be a stranger, um, the, p the kids who grow up interacting with people and not being terrified, not freezing when they, they come up to a stranger, um, actually are safer. And unfortunately, it's the family and friends and acquaintances that a child already knows that are most likely to hurt and seriously harm a child. Um, that's just the unhappy truth. And so if we're drumming into their minds, don't talk to strangers, but it actually could be the people they know who could hurt them the most, the whole advice is sort of backwards. So I'm mm -hmm. saying let's question this and let's give kids the street smarts that they need, um, not leaving them on a street corner somewhere, but, you know, giving them that, right. that social interaction and healthy risk they need to, to interact with the world. Well, I think it makes them a better judge of people. I think kids have a pretty good idea of, you know, this person seems safe and they seem nice. This person seems super creepy, but they're never going to develop that if you don't let them. You can't just expect them at whatever age, 15 or 16, to know how to do it when you do let them out into the world. Right. And, you know, we as adults are judging people all the time and deciding, can we trust this person? And and we need to allow kids to develop that skill. So um, they're finding that kids who develop these street smarts are actually safer. And, of course, sometimes it's the friendly person you have to watch out for, but that's a, another mm -hmm. nuance. And kids need practice gaining that, that skill as well. Absolutely. So there's all kinds of things. I, I look back at my childhood, and then I'm sure my parents look back at theirs and their parents all on and so on. And we always think, man, things are really different from from how I grew up. This is not the way we did things. What are some things that kids are experiencing today that maybe someone in my generation, I'm a, at the upper end of the millennial generation, I, I guess I have to admit, what are some things that kids are experiencing today that maybe even my generation wouldn't have experienced? Yes. Well, um, a lot of um, my book goes into the preschool years, but also into the elementary school years. Mm -hmm. And in, in elementary school, kids are experiencing, um, in some cases, no recess at all or fewer and shorter recesses. And they're experiencing homework in kindergarten, sometimes in five subjects. And if, um, if there is no homework, that in preschool, the parents are pushing for it. So there's sort of a earlier is better and more, more, more attitude as far as the academics. And that's what kids even, you know, half a generation ago, it wasn't as extreme as it is now. How does that, I mean, there's so much research that shows that play is so important 
to a child's development, it's even important for adults to have time to sort of play and, and, and experience and do these things. How is that message being missed? Well, I think in some ways, I mean, your question is excellent. In some ways, I think the message about play is being changed so that some folks will say, okay, play, we'll have them stack blocks in the shape of a letter T and we'll call that play and play-based learning when actually that's, that's an academic, you're using a block, you're using mm-hmm. something physical, but it's not true play because true play is the child's own ideas bursting out of them. Um, and it can come out in ways that adults raise their eyebrows and think, oh, is this, you know, too dark or is this acceptable? Yeah. Um, but play comes from the child. And of course, in a school environment, they can't necessarily do everything they think of during class, but that's why they need these breaks so that they can be themselves and process, um, process ideas and thoughts in, in, a, in a recess time. So what exactly is happening with recess? Are they completely getting rid of it? Are they trying to structure it way too much? Or is it kind of a combination of both? Yeah, well, when I grew up, I had three recesses a day, morning, Uh afternoon, and lunch recess. Um, It's getting shorter. They're getting fewer of them. Um, A lot of schools only have the one in the middle of the day, a lunch recess. And But 40% of the kids in the U.S. Um, are really getting little or no recess at all, meaning just 15 minutes or less. And, and some schools, even as young as kindergarten, are getting zero recess. Um, but that's, that's like telling kids you can't have lunch today. Um, you know, it's just as important as giving kids a lunch break to recharge their brains and, and, and get that energy back. It, it's essential for brain function, and they're finding that if kids aren't um, having those breaks, their memory and their focus and their um, problem-solving skills, all those cognitive fun- functions decrease. Plus, their impulse control gets shaky, so all behavior issues come up. But the more recesses they have, um, the better, especially for kids they label ADHD, that the more restless yeah. they are, the more they benefit from the recess. Do you think it's contributing? You, you mentioned ADHD. Is that maybe contributing to a rise in those diagnoses? Because, uh, I mean, it, it seems like there are more kids that are diagnosed with that. Is it because they're just being forced to be in this academic environment all the time? They don't get a chance to let some of that pent-up energy out? Right. Well, you know, there are some kids who have legitimate diagnoses of all sorts. Sure. But the, 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 the tendency for adults to say, oh, this kid must be... ADHD or this kid has you know, behavior problems or whatever it is, is often because the adult expectations are clashing with what's normal child development. Hmm. So, for example, um, boys, they actually, they've, they've put little monitors on boys and girls, and they've researched that boys move more than girls in the course of a day, and that boys' peak energy and peak movement is actually around age seven or eight. They move more at that time than any other part of their life. And age seven or eight is exactly when they're in second grade or first grade, and they're supposed to be sitting down and being still. So their bodies are commanding them to move, and and, um, all the adults surrounding them are expecting them to sit. So there's a real clash and and it seems like there's a lot of of places that are also de-emphasizing like physical education classes as well. Are, are, what is this movement away from physical movement? I guess is that is that something that's is there any well, positive yeah. aspect to that or or why I can't figure <laughs> out why it would be happening. 
Well, I think that there's two things happening with, with gym class. One is that, um, you know, such a push on the academic, on solely the cognitive skills, not the social skills, the physical skills, the emotional skills, which are so important for a well-rounded person, but especially in these early years. But the other thing that's happening with, with gym class is there's some more attention given to it because of, say, the obesity epidemics and all those kinds of concerns. Um, but in a lot of schools, they're doing things like you'll have gym class on Mondays and Wednesdays, mm-hmm. so then you only have recess on Tuesdays, Thursdays, Fridays. So they're substituting gym class into recess and saying it's the same thing because it's all about physical motion. When really, as any kid will tell you, you know, what's recess? What's the difference between gym and recess? Well, in gym class, the teacher tells you what to do and you can't have your friends on your team. Yeah, my elementary school did that. We had three recesses a day, except for the days we had P.E., we only got two. So we still got our recesses, but the afternoon recess, we had to go play whatever sport the teacher decided we were going to learn that week. Uh, I'm I'm getting slightly perturbed by this, I guess. (laughs) And I don't even have a kid. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's good for us to be perturbed. And in your case, you know, you still had two recesses even on gym days. So nowadays when the kids get gym class, they have zero recess that day. It's amazing. I guess I I feel like I guess my childhood was 20 years ago, but it doesn't feel that long ago. But how much that has changed in that uh, amount of time. You also propose a ban on homework in elementary schools. And now that I know that kids aren't getting the breaks, my question doesn't become, well, isn't that good for kids? I guess it becomes what why what is so important about eliminating the homework? Yes, well, what they're finding, you know, homework is one of those things like, you know, the motherhood and apple pie. It's just we accept it as it's a good. Maybe the kids don't like it, but it's good for them. So maybe it's more like broccoli than apple pie. But <laughs> the, the idea that they should do it and, and we as the adults in their lives need to support them in it. What the research is showing is that the benefits of homework are highly age-dependent. So in high school, there's some benefit. In middle school, very, very slightly. But in elementary school, and this is not just one study, it's a review of 180 different studies on homework. So it's it's, it's a comprehensive review. It's finding zero correlation between the time kids spend on homework and academic achievement in elementary school. So there's there's not that connection of having a benefit. It seems, too, though, like we're almost trying to turn them into adults way faster than they need to be, right? Because, like, you know, you and I, maybe we go to our day jobs and we work all day. We really don't get a recess from that except for our little bit of a lunch. And then a lot of times people, and I'm guilty of this, will take their work home and you're working on it until 8 o'clock at night. You don't see your family. You're not doing any of the fun activities that you should be doing. Why are we forcing this on children? Well, I think it's driven by fear, Um, you know, fear that the kids won't get ahead, fear that, you know, we won't beat China, all these different foreign countries are going to get ahead of us, Um, when actually the skills that kids need, especially for future jobs, which we cannot even imagine, are um, getting on with other people, basic uh, social interaction, conflict mediation is going to be huge, and creative thinking, flexible thinking, problem solving, all that type of thinking um, is very hard to teach with a homework ro- worksheet, but it does come out when you interact with life. When a child plays, they develop those skills by playing, either playing by themselves or playing with others. They're developing that kind of thinking. And so 
I think that we just don't value those types of skills um, and, and really recognize the learning that's taking place. You know, a young seven-year-old, we don't value that the kind of work they do as they're playing and sorting out the game rules with their brother or their neighbor is much harder work, really, than doing some of the academic worksheets that we set for them. But I, I wonder if there's just that mental block for adults because we've put aside childish things and we've moved on from play and, and so they too need to be trained in the ways of the real world. Like, hey, is that, is there sort of a mental block on adults? We're like, well, okay, this soccer game that Timmy's trying to start up in the yard really doesn't matter. So why should we care about it? He should be in here doing math problems. Is that kind of coming yeah. to play? I think there's a lot of things that like that that come into play, and, and I'm sure it's different for every you know family or, or community of what they're worried about. But it is, um, they should grow up, they should learn responsibility, they should they should suffer because I suffered as a kid. <laughs> I don't know what all the things are, but you know what works better? Here's a couple things that work better than homework. One is reading, and not just reading, but reading for pleasure. So if a six-year-old who's struggling to learn to read and it's not pleasurable to come home and read aloud, well, let the adult read to the child. It, it, they learn so much language it, uh, by being read aloud, too. So make sure it's pleasurable. Or let an older child read by themselves. Um, and some places are substituting homework. They're getting rid of the homework but substituting reading for pleasure. And, and that, that does wonders for kids and families. The other thing that's, that really works but nobody takes it seriously, just like play, it's sleep. Mm. Because um, kids are, are chronically sleep-deprived in this country. So are the adults, but we're focusing <laughs> yeah. on the kids. Right. <laughs> Maybe we're sleep-deprived because of the kids. Yes, yeah. anyway, that's a big part of it, too, yeah. <laughs> The, um, you know, the sleep, it's well documented. If you get the kids to bed earlier and they get the amount of sleep they're supposed to, which is huge amounts at these young ages, their memory is better, their problem solving, you know, their behavior, everything clicks better for the next school day if they go to bed early and get good sleep, not stay up late, which some of the kids age eight, age seven are doing two to three hours of homework a night, going to bed in tears and getting turned off from school. Man, that, that is two to three hours a night. That is entirely too much. I mean, just from an outsider's perspective, and like I said, I don't have children. I'm not a teacher or anything like that. But I can't imagine. I think at most in elementary school, they'd like send home, uh, here's a sheet of 30 math problems. Learn your times tables or, you know, whatever it was. Right. Yeah, well, now they have math and Spanish and spelling and reading and something to log on to on the computer and, you know, often multiple subjects every day. Depends on the school, what it's like. Um, and they yeah. really hit the middle, middle schoolers hard. But the research is showing that even at the high school level, if you do more than two hours a night, the, the benefits drop off. You know, there's only so much mental power kids can give this. When I'm tired at the end of the day, that I'm not using my best brain power. I'm using my worst brain power. And these young kids who actually need to go to bed around 7 or 8, they're not in top form using that academic side of their brain when it's after dinner or you know around that time of day. They're just not in peak form. Going even further back, and this is at the earliest stages of elementary school, but you talk about kindergarten being out of sync with child development. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, again, thinking back to our own kindergarten times, a lot of times it was shorter and there were songs and it had quite a bit of play. And nowadays they call kindergarten the new first grade. 
and in some cases it's more accurate to call it the new second grade. There's very, very um, strong academic expectations that are really out of line with what kids can handle. Um, so, for example, um, in preschool classrooms, kindergarten classrooms, almost every single wall has an enormous calendar on it, you know, and it charts out the days of the week and, mm-hmm. and so on. And w- researchers who study that human development of concepts of time say that it isn't till around age seven that the human being can even grasp ideas like February and how far that is away till the next month. So these kids are being drilled daily, starting at age three, four, five, on the calendar and days of the week and all this time-based adult agendas and schedules. Um, And really, we're wasting their time because they need to be learning the skills of play that will help them get on with others and and follow their own ideas and develop those brain connections so that when they are seven or closer to that age, that they their brains are ready for this kind of academic learning. Yeah, it seems to me, as I look back at, at my days in kindergarten, that it was more about getting used to the idea of being in this building for several hours and, and having to you know behave yourself in a certain way and deal with these kids that you don't know necessarily yet. And, and, and occasionally we'd learn how to write the letter M. Like, it didn't seem like it was that involved. What, what is, is, is it been just a, a, well, a fear of competition studying- or what? Yeah, now they're studying economics in kindergarten, and they're learning Why? like producers and consumers. <laughs> they're learning the definition of capitalism. Not to pick on economics, but there's you know they have they have various subjects, social studies and so on, and it starts very young. It's it's driven by the state's curriculum rules. And the teachers often don't like having to follow all this, and they try to do it in the most engaging way they can. But still, there's so much they're required to impart, and sometimes their salaries are tied to how well the kids learn it. So, um, yeah, it's a whole nationwide idea of the more we can do it sooner. I think what the problem is is that people have caught on, and by people I mean the politicians and, and the, the lawmakers and, and some of the administrators, they've caught on to the idea that the zero to five, those first early years, that the brain can absorb so much. Mm. And that's wonderful. Yes, it can absorb so much, but it needs to absorb what it needs to absorb. It needs to follow the natural pace of child development. And if you try to push on this school agenda, adult agenda too early, it's it's miseducation is what David Elkin calls it, um, that you're teaching the wrong things at the wrong time. And it hurts kids because then they're not learning the life skills they need. And and you mentioned the, the standardized in the testing and, and we're based out of Texas and they have one that is maligned by like everybody who's ever been involved with it. What is there any benefit to that at all? Because I've never met a teacher that's like, oh, yeah, these these state standards that we have to teach to are a wonderful thing. Well, there are usually more than one test, and that's not necessarily a good thing. But sometimes the tests can give some um, useful data to the teachers. So not all tests are equal is what I'm saying. Right. But if you have if you have too many tests and they take up too much time, you're taking again, you're stealing time from when the children could be learning. Sure. Um, so generally, it's it's something that the number crunchers like more than the teachers and the kids do. And um, it's certainly gone uh, quite far in, in the testing direction these days. 
Well, and I think it can provide like guidelines. Okay, well, we, we know this, this class or this person is struggling with this. Maybe we need to, to focus our curriculum on this, but instead they kind of seem like, well, you can't advance unless you do this. And the teacher, you're going to see your salary drop or you're not going to get that raise, uh, because this person doesn't know this. Yeah, I, there's, there's a lot of things that we could go down that road with on standardized testing. <laughs> Uh, what is your, your message to families as, as they're, you know, like my family will be starting out relatively soon. And what message would you give to a family like mine that's, that's going to be starting out with kids on this journey? Yeah, well, I think one important thing is to realize if something's bothering you, it's, it's time to listen to your gut. It's time to make a change. So if you, um, if you think something's, not right, like your child is not getting recess, they're only getting gym time, or they're um, having to do study economics in kindergarten and they're not getting the playtime they need. If you feel something's just not right, then then listen to that feeling because a lot of the adults are feeling that just everybody's doing it or the teacher says so, so it must be right or I don't know any better. But really, just because everyone's doing it doesn't mean it's what's right for you and your child, and it doesn't mean it's what's right for child development. So don't be afraid to question and speak up and educate yourself about what kids really need um, and see if you can find some allies to make some changes. I think that's fantastic, and I think it's also very helpful along those same. Just always try to have a good, honest, open dialogue with the teachers, right? I mean, and not, not in the sense that you're going to be running in there every time Junior has a problem, but that you can at <laughs> least figure out, you know, where the teacher is coming from and what their thought process is, and maybe they can glean something from having an open relationship with parents as well. Right, exactly. It's all about adults having the courage to talk to other adults, and we get pretty squeamish about that. It, it can be hard, especially a parent thinking about, you know, disagreeing with a teacher or coming up with a different idea, but it's just another adult, and you're supposed to be partners in this, you're supposed to be allies, and if something's not working on one side or the other, you need to talk to each other and have the courage to do that. That's where it starts. Absolutely. Well, the book, uh, it's okay to go up the slide, Renegade Rules for Raising Confident and Creative Kids, kind of what we focused on here. And there's also another book, It's Okay Not to Share. Uh, Heather Shoemaker, there's so much. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. I encourage uh, folks to get the book. Is, is it available wherever fine books are sold or a website that they can go to to learn more? Yes, it's available wherever uh, books are sold. And my website is my name, which is Heather Shoemaker. So it's heatherschoemaker.com. Fantastic. And we'll we'll put a link to that uh, with our, our page that uh, promotes this podcast. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. And we'll look forward to talking to you again sometime down the road. All right. Great. Great. Thanks so much for having me.